We have a champion, and we're going to discuss them here on this episode of the IndieMall Report Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast, your favorite podcast to discuss the independent leagues of baseball. And we do have our champion for the year. We're not going to milk out this intro because we need to get into the lead here, which is obviously the American Association Championship here. I'm Nick. He's Will. I'm going to let him talk now because he was going to say something until I cut him off. <laughs> I thought I thought you were you, you were waiting for me to say something, but yeah, we did. We the American Association did crown a champion last night. Of course, that being the Milwaukee Milkmen. I would just like to say right off the bat, there was a certain member of the show who picked uh, the Milwaukee Milkmen to win this series in five games, and huh, they, they won the series in five games, didn't they, Nick? I mean, like. I see my name next to the five. I mean, there's another name here that starts with a W that's all scratched <laughs> out in front of it, though. So I, I think we could just call it a draw. I, I, I mean, you see, I could take the draw. You, you know what? I, I'll cut my losses. I, I'll take the draw. We could, we, could, we could split it. Smart decision to split it with the guy that edits the show. <laughs> that, that, that's true. But I, I think, I think uh, everyone... It was kind of a foregone conclusion, especially when you go from a five-game series to a seven-game series, that there's a better chance that the better team is going to win. And I don't think there was really much surprise here. Milwaukee was definitely the best team in the American Association by by a pretty wide margin. The games were entertaining. They they really were. It's not like Milwaukee just like completely destroyed Sioux Falls for, for, for five games. And uh, the the games were entertaining. I thought the, the the Milwaukee offense specifically did a lot better than I expected them to do. But I, I think we can all pretty much agree. I think that that the best team won the league this year, and I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're just going to dive right into it now. And you did mention the Milwaukee offense, and that's something that definitely came alive. I mean, eleven runs in game one. Then they only had the two runs in game two, but that was a real pitcher's duel. Game three comes around. They still they're just dominating batting wise. They got ten runs. Then game four, they only had three, but even still, they they definitely showed up. And then obviously in uh, game number five, they put up the four runs that took the win. So still more offense than we're accustomed with this team. And there was a handful of guys that really performed there. But uh, like you were mentioning, and like I made in the in the social media post last night, although this is a four to one series, and although I think we all kind of predicted this. I thought it was going to, they were going to win two at the Birdcage, and then Milwaukee would win all the th- all three games they needed to play at home, and then the one on the road, and that's how it would go. The games really weren't as lopsided as that may seem. It, just because they took the first three and then game five doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a close game. I mean, game two was a two-run game, and if not for Henderson Alvarez, just throwing one of the best performances we've seen, only to be topped in Game 5 by Holmberg throwing seven and a third hitless innings where he only allows the one walk. Unfortunately for the Canaries, they just ran into a real dynamo pitching staff and one yeah. and then a hitting core that remembered how to hit. And it just yeah. all came together. And you, when you see everything come together, the one thing that I kind of take away is I look at it and go... 
imagine if we had that 100 game slate and they were hitting like this the whole year with the with the way their pitching was. That's a team right. that could easily win 65 games. Yeah, I have to, I have to agree with you. I think uh, obviously five games in any in any um, sense of baseball is is a small sample size. I mean, you have guys like guys like Zach Nerer who hit 196 during during the regular season, but all of a sudden just starts matching in the playoffs. Uh, hitting 389, two home runs. Uh, he went seven for 18, scored five runs, three doubles, two homers, six RBIs. I mean, he just came alive, and that was that's kind of it's kind of the theme of the series for the Milwaukee offense. A lot, a lot of guys that had quiet offensive years really came alive. Could you put some of that uh, on the Sioux Falls pitching, which I think a lot of us, both of us, can agree wasn't uh, wasn't really particularly great during the regular season, and uh, that didn't change now. I think you could put a little bit of it on on the Sioux Falls pitching, but but the reality is M- Milwaukee showed up for the series, and uh, I think it definitely helped them that they didn't have to play around before it. And they could just they could just go all in on these five games, set up their pitching how they wanted to, get two starts out of Holmberg. I mean, Henderson Alvarez starting um, game two. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant, J- just brilliant. And uh, unfortunately, that that get that game two was kind of the that was that was Sioux Falls' do or die game because of Tyler Danish on the mound, and that was the game that they had to win in order. To, ha- to split it in Milwaukee and go back to the birdcage at 1-1. Uh, that was the game they had to have. Tyler Danish certainly pitched well enough to give them that game. Unfortunately, Henderson Alvarez was just better. And I think at that point, once the Canaries lost that game with their ace, Tyler Danish, on the mound, I think at that point, I thought it was a pretty much a foregone conclusion that it would be Milwaukee winning the series. It would just be a matter of, of how many games. Yeah, I think really from the get-go, it was kind of Milwaukee's series to lose. Obviously, I, I think I put a little bit more on the Sioux Falls pitching. And also partially two for two of the game, three of the games, my mistake. They were at a very, very hitter-friendly park. And I believe it was that first game there, game three, that the wind was actually blowing out. So you had a hitter's wind on top of a hitter's park, which, I mean, there's there's a lot of talent still in the hitting core, as we saw. I mean, Zach Narrier, as you uh, read his stat line out, he also drew four walks. He just came alive in this series, and he got named the, the playoff MVP for that. And, I mean, in Game 3, Milwaukee puts up 10 runs. So, clearly, there's something there. Plus, they hit Tyler Heron real hard in his first start. Now, of course, Heron, he bounced back. But it's not like... With the exception of Danish, there was too many like really great A starts here. Danish and Zokan looked decent in Game Four, five innings combined between the two of them. Uh, they only allowed two hits there, but even still, uh, I just I don't really put a lot of stock in that Sioux Falls pitching. I think if the pitching was better, I would have felt a lot more confident, even if it was. Even if it was just like average, to be quite honest, because it was just so below average. I mean, that and also I put a little bit of fault on that bullpen just not really being reliable. The only guy I saw out of that bullpen that I was like, yeah, he's a guy that you could consistently go to was Kevin Fullman. I mean, he pitched just under four innings. He didn't allow a single hit. He walked four guys, but he struck six out and he didn't allow any runs. So, I mean, that's reliable there. And on the flip side of things, the Milwaukee bullpen was just very good. Like, your usual three all did well. 
paint and gray was apparently a little bit human. I think it was game one that he gave up a solo shot to give a, finally give up his first home run of the year after like 32 and a third innings. He finally it was surrendered. Stunning, stunning stuff. I'm um, exactly. I mean, that, of course, Gray gives up another one in game uh, four or no, game five last night. He gives up that other run. So, I mean, his playoff ERA winds up being four and a half, but even still, two runs in what, 36 innings of action this year. It's still yeah. pretty damn good. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, that, that ERA comes out to, to 050 for, for, for the year. I mean, j- just just ridiculous. Yeah, I did really want to see him finish, uh, With finish zero, scoreless, yeah. but unfortunately, it, w- it wasn't meant to be. But you're right. I mean, the back end of the Milwaukee bullpen has been terrific all year, and uh, nothing changed in this series and i think uh i think that was the difference my question to you would be nick let's say that saint paul is in this instead of sioux falls do you think we have a different series i think there is a different series plus now the thought of having game one be homework versus divine is a lot more interesting yeah i think i'm not sure we have a different result but i do think it's in more games that we get this same result because you assume homework and divine are going to match up twice and yeah. you assume they split that just because of how ridiculously good both pitchers are. Then game two would probably be Henderson Alvarez versus Matt Soltar. And I mean, at that point, that's a real toss up there, in my opinion, at least as to who wins it. Now, obviously, we know what Alvarez did. And I'm not sure if it's fair to assume he would have still had that same start regardless if he was facing Sioux Falls or if he was facing St. Paul. But either way... I think at the end of the day, it really wouldn't have mattered much pitching-wise. They're roughly the same. Now, granted, as far as the back end of the bullpen goes, I like St. Paul's a lot more just by virtue of having Jameson McCrane in there. Yep. So that's obviously a major upgrade from really anybody in that uh, Sioux Falls bullpen. And again, I think bat-wise, too... Well, yeah, St. Paul is a bit more dangerous if you consider the fact there's a lot more guys that can get on base and there's a lot more small ball, but they don't really have the same kind of big run potential. I mean, when you look at Sioux Falls, at least coming into this series, it didn't really work out that way with the exception of a handful of guys here. They they had that kind of potential to get one or two guys on then have a home run to bring them home. Or just to hit a couple back-to-back solo shots. I mean, Jabari Henry this series, he batted 412 with two home runs. It's a solid series from him. Roy Morales batted 375. Clint Coulter batted 350. There's a lot of guys on that Sioux Falls team that were still hitting. So it's not like they weren't exactly true to their identity. They played up to that identity. And if you assume St. Paul would do the same exact thing and play to that identity, I just see a Milwaukee team that's really good at pitching. And it's a fine fielding team. I mean, they had a co-defensive player of the year, and we'll talk about those awards in a little bit because there is some uh, some interesting choices there. But you have... To a, say the least. Yeah, you have a very solid defensive outfield just by virtue of having Vertigan. And, I mean, everyone else back there in Narier isn't really that bad of a defensive player at all either. I mean, Mason Davis is fairly strong at fielding that shortstop position too. Dylan Tice is solid over at second base Washington does a fine job at first I mean there's a there's enough of a defensive layout here where they can limit damage to really just allow base hits and I mean they have enough guys that know how to pitch to get double play balls we saw that over the course of the series so 
in the most uh, lengthy and roundabout way of answering the question, I'll just kind of summarize it by just going, I think we would have seen maybe six games because I think mm-hmm. overall the St. Paul pitching staff is better. And I think batting-wise, they're just slightly worse. It's negligible, really. And, I mean, we said coming into the series, the Canaries may not be the second-best team in this league. It probably is St. Paul, after considering the fact that Winnipeg just completely collapsed over, like, the last three weeks of the year, which is the absolute worst time to collapse, as we've seen. And, uh, yeah, I think we still would have gotten the same result. I think it just would have taken longer to get there. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think uh, in a lot of senses, Sioux Falls is is not the second best team in the league, like you said. Uh, I also think they don't really match up particularly well with Milwaukee. Not that St. Paul is a great matchup for for Milwaukee, but I I do think Sioux Falls, when they're so reliant, on their offense, and they hit pretty well. They, they they really did. They scored enough. They scored enough runs to win this series. Unfortunately, to, to at least to give themselves a chance in a lot of these games. But unfortunately, the the pitching, the pitching just really wasn't there for them, and um and and they came up short. And that that's that's pr- that's pretty much what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean they scored seventeen runs over five games. So I mean it's not like they they like you said they weren't not putting up runs. It's just that they lost to a better team at the end of the day. That's all there really is to it. Uh, Just quickly looking back through each game, I figured might as well give a rundown of how each game kind of went and how we got to this result now, and then we'll kind of move on to the award aspect of it. But uh, game one, obviously the series started Saturday when we released the last episode, so we had pretty good timing on the release of that episode there to give you that primer going right into it. And we saw Tyler Heron take on... David Holmberg in game one in Milwaukee, and right out of the gate, uh, the milkman just jumped on him. It was a really, really solid offensive output. Six runs in the first inning. I will give Tyler Heron credit. He battled through five and a third innings, so he really stayed in there. He ate some innings that you could argue whether or not he should eat, but he did his job to kind of keep the bullpen as, I guess, inactive as possible, knowing that there's still at least another three games in the series, so we got to do whatever we can to just kind of conserve this. I mean, if you're down six runs in the first inning already, your win probability has kind of went through the floorboards out of the gate here, which, as we'd see it with the final score, they would have just wound up tying it if Milwaukee wound up not scoring another run, but... It really doesn't matter. That's not how it worked out. Heron's final line, five and a third, ten hits, six earned runs, five strikeouts. So all things considering, you take out that first inning, it's not really the worst start in the world for him. Yeah, the only other couple notable things that I saw out of that game, uh, obviously Peyton Gray allows his first run of the year, a solo shop at Clint Coulter. Every single milkman got a hit, and every milkman but Logan Trowbridge scored a run in that game. And then Jabari Henry really stepped up in the postseason. He's known for doing this, so it's not that surprising. But he went 4-for-4 four four with a home run, a pair of doubles, and a maze hit. He finishes a triple short of the cycle in Game 1. And Milwaukee ultimately leaves with the victory 11-6. to six. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, that, that game, it, it was definitely more high scoring than I thought in Game 1. For sure, I, I know David Holmberg. I think I think if David Holmberg had a better game one start, I think he's easily the series MVP. But 
Uh, overall, I mean, you're right. The Milwaukee offense just mashed. It was. It's basically it's, it's, the story of Tyler Heron. The, this entire year is he, he'd have like he would have like three like three really rough starts, two like awesome ones, like two like complete games, and then back to three rough starts. So I think that 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 kind of followed followed that trend. And um, the, at, at that point, I was like, oh. Milwaukee, Milwaukee's offense is, is showing up. I know I, I definitely still gave Sioux Falls a good chance to win in game two because of Tyler Danish, but of course that that uh, that didn't happen. Yep, and so with game two, uh, we only saw four canaries for each base in that game. It was just the definition of a pitcher's duel. It ultimately ends 2-0 in favor of Milwaukee, but uh, can't really blame Tyler Danish for that. He went six strong innings, only allowed seven hits. Both runs were earned, and he struck one out, but he looked extremely strong doing that. Henderson yeah. Alvarez all winds up going seven innings. He allows only two hits, and he strikes out four. No earned runs. Like I said, it's, it's just the definition of a pitcher's duel. Every which way you cut it. Henderson Alvarez, too, if not for what David Holmberg would do in Game 5, definitely would have been uh, the standout pitching performance of the series. But as we know, Holmberg kind of went up some a little bit later on here. This is really, I think, one of the first coming out games, though, for Zach Nerrier. He goes 2-for-3 with a home run. He was one of the few milkmen that was really providing a lot of offense in this game, or at least relative to this game. With that, we went into the travel day, heading to Sioux Falls for Game Three. Yeah, exactly. You pretty much said it all. Henderson Alvarez was brilliant, and that was, that was enough to give him the win. Yep. And so then we go to Game Three. Sioux Falls would wind up dropping this one too by a final score of ten to five. However, Andrew Ely makes his return to the lineup. He was with the team in Milwaukee, but he did not play in Milwaukee. I don't know why it was listed as personal reasons. However, I'd venture to say it's probable that he just kind of tweaked something and then just didn't want to play him on it. Either way, he returned, and he was kind of a lightning rod player. He really finally started to spark the offense, and he just looked all in all. The team just looked better with him in the lineup. Uh, it's as simple as that. But as far as pitching goes, each side were kind of meh. Uh, Drew Hutchinson went from Milwaukee. He went five innings, seven hits, four runs, eight strikeouts. Ty Coldbreath on the other end, four and two-thirds, six hits, five runs, six Ks. Like I said, a couple of really mess starts, not god-awful, but not good. Uh, Batting-wise, Zach Nerrier again shows up, two runs scored and a home run, two for four in the day. Mason Davis really stepped up, too. He scored three runs on three hits. He got a double as well. Clint Coulter continued to do what Clint Coulter does. He goes three for four, hits a home run, brought in three RBIs, and he scored a pair of runs, too. So, I mean, we saw a lot more... I would say much more typical Canary baseball. So-so pitching, but some offense coming there. However, at the end of the day, again, their starter kind of put them behind the eight ball again. And if you give up the amount of runs that you score just from your starter alone, you know, off the bat, you're kind of really behind the eight ball, like I'm saying here. And obviously the bullpen didn't do any favors either in their uh, four and a third innings of work either. So... Uh, that's just the way that goes. Milwaukee pushes them to the brink going into game four. 
Yeah, well, like you mentioned, Drew Hutchinson wasn't great, and I think that was that was really Sioux Falls' opportunity uh, to, to jump on him. Unfortunately, like you mentioned, they didn't get a good start. Uh, the bullpen the bullpen wasn't very good, and and any time you allow ten, ten runs to Milwaukee, there's you're not you're not going to win that game, and especially because even though Drew Hutchinson wasn't great, the bullpen. Uh, did their job as well. At that point, you, you could kind of tell that, the, the, well, obviously it was 3-0, and you could tell the series was, pre- was pretty much over at that point. Yeah, the writing was on the wall at that stage, and if and that was one game where I was like, okay, they could definitely still win this series. Like you said, with the round of runs they got, they got five runs, and they're starting to get back into it, but once you give up 10 runs to Milwaukee, it really is uh, it's really done. And that's why I was almost surprised they didn't hold Danish back to start game three. I figured it was either going to be game one or game three. They were going to have him start. And then when he didn't, I was like, okay, this is interesting that you're going game two. Like, I understand the logic, the logic behind starting in game two, because you go, okay, we can even up the series one apiece going back. Then it becomes the best of five. But at the same time, I I personally would have either said you're going game one to give us a lead or you're going game three to get a critical win if we need it. And uh, that's not what they wound up going with. At this point, we all kind of knew what exactly it would be. Now, game four is a bit odd. Tyler Danish does go out to the mound to start it. He only pitches one inning. The guy that was supposed to start was Jake Zokan. But Zokan was scratched late from his start because of illness. But then he came out to pitch starting the second inning. And he pitched all the way through... Uh, for four innings before handing it off to the bullpen. Either way, the combination of Danish and Zokan Danish sat down all three milkmen in order. Uh, I don't believe he struck anybody out. So uh, Zokan winds up going four innings, two hits, no runs, four strikeouts for him. So obviously that combo worked, unlike uh, Dillard, who only goes three and two-thirds, seven hits, five runs, two Ks. Just a really poor start out of Dillard. Sioux Falls had a shutout going two until the ninth inning. Keaton Steele gave a three-run shot to Zach Vertigan, and that broke up the shutout. Kind of made you sweat a little bit because it became 5-3, and it was like, okay, this series could still end in a sweep. Let's not count anything yet. And uh, while they may not have gotten a lot of hits, only four hits on that day for Milwaukee, they drew eight walks. So it's not like they weren't getting guys on base. They just couldn't bring them home. And that's a, yeah. and at the end of the day, you need to bring runners home. Getting them on base doesn't really mean much if they don't come across the score. Uh, and as far as Milkman that didn't reach base, only Mason Davis didn't, which is kind of surprising when you see a team that just barely avoided getting shut out. But uh, it's kind of a little deceptive there. A uh, flip side for Sioux Falls, only guy that doesn't reach base is Logan Landon. Jabari Henry, again, another good day, a home run. Uh, two walks, two runs scored, two for two on the day. So. Yeah, I think the the interesting part about this game was, was the whole the whole uh, was pitching because when Tyler Danish took the mound, I was bewildered to say to say the least. Not not to mention with with, with the Jake Zokan being scratched late, and then ha- them bringing out Tyler Danish. I'm like, what is happening? And then um, once Zokan came in, I guess he miraculously cured of his illness from the first to the second inning. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of still confused about that. But yeah, what I, I mean, the reality is he, he definitely pitched very well. He did uh, give up three walks. Uh, he did walk three guys. But overall, 
the Sioux Falls pitching staff uh, w- w- was really good in this one, except for Kevin Steele, who we've kind of mentioned is not really a great option uh, at, at closer. And as far as Milwaukee, you definitely expected a, a better start out of TJ Dillard. They didn't get it. And uh, that, that was the game where you kind of felt like um, where obviously Sioux Falls, their backs were against the wall. They're they're just playing with nothing to lose. Uh, and J- Jabari Henry hit his second home run of the series. Yeah, and in the game, the score was five to three, but it doesn't. The game wasn't really all that close until right at the end of the game. Yeah, that it, it was a nice win for them just to avoid avoid getting swept. But uh, I think we knew with, with Holmberg going in game five. We knew we knew there's probably a good chance that Milwaukee was going to take care of business in Game Five. Exactly. I mean, you had Holmberg and then Alvarez going. Uh, the writing was kind of on the wall. Which again, I I do kind of wonder again the way Danish was used. Obviously, if you used him in Game Two, even with the what one, two, three days off, he wasn't going to be able to go in Game Five. So, mm. like, what what I'm wondering here is why you don't use him in game one or game three again because with game one then he could go in game five if you need him if you use him in game three well then you again you may not be in this position especially considering how everything worked out Milwaukee scored 10 runs if you assume Tyler Danish is not going to give up 10 runs or at least not give up five runs in his start and he limits it to let's say two runs all of a sudden now it's a lot closer of a series now you're still one and two going into game four. Dillard probably still has the same kind of start. If Zokan goes out and he pitches well again, now it's two two going into game five, and who knows how the series works out in that case. But you know, yeah. that's that's all what if, and I mean that doesn't really mean much. So we go to game five. Milwaukee ultimately wins the American Association Championship in this one, four to one, similar to the series, four games to one. And David Holmberg just steals the show. Seven and a third innings without a hit. Only one base runner allowed in that seven and a third. He allows one hit, one walk. But obviously I'm talking up until he gives up the hit. Tyler Heron wasn't a slouch either. Five hits, three runs, ten strikeouts, two walks, and seven innings. He did a really solid job. He went out there. It was a gutsy performance for him too. He's nearing 100 pitches if I'm right for him. So, I mean, solid, solid performance all the way around. David Washington launched a solo shot. He uh, went two for three as well. And ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, Milwaukee just looked really, really solid. It got a little hairy for them at the end there with, uh, again, Peyton Gray on the mound. He surrenders his second run of the year. Then at the end, they had both runners on that they needed to tie the game. And they had, I believe it was Jabari Henry at the plate after Damick Tomshay got on. And it looked like maybe they could rally. But at the end of the day, Gray strikes him out. The door gets slammed shut. And a championship goes home to Milwaukee for the first time in franchise history. The two-year-old franchise walks away a champion. Yeah, it was the it was the David Holmberg show. It was it, it was just awesome to watch. Uh, it's incredible to watch. It was it was just just an awesome outing. Really happy for him. Uh, and he he was in Somerset last year. He's a really 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 nice guy. Uh, and so could, couldn't be happier for him. Uh, he pitched like the ace he's been for for Milwaukee all year. Even though you could make the case that Milwaukee has like two like two or three aces at this point, but he he was just outstanding. And I mean, you you don't even have to look at you could just look at the guys who pitched in this game: David Holmberg, AJ Shugel, Peyton Gray. They're not losing that game. 
you're right. Things got a little bit, a uh, little bit dicey at the end, but uh, eventually Peyton Gray uh, came through and got the final out. I mean, David Holmberg w- was just awesome, and uh, and c- congratulations to Milwaukee. And it's definitely it, it's interesting to see a new, a new, fr- such a new franchise come out on top, and uh, it's awesome for them. And it'll be interesting to see what the future what the future holds for them. Absolutely, and to be fair. High Point was almost in that position last year, and they probably would have been in the same position this year, too, if not for uh, the season getting canceled. That's right. the one thing. It's a little bit different, too, in the uh, in the indie leagues and in the minor leagues. I mean, newer teams aren't exactly saddled with the same position that a major professional sports league team would have. I mean, obviously, they don't have expansion drafts or anything, and everyone's starting from about the same field. But even still, I do agree with you. It is interesting to see a team so young and on their second manager already uh, win like that. And I guess with that, we'll kind of segue over to the the award list here before we wrap up the American Association in 2020. And uh, we know Adam Brett Walker won Player of the Year. That was the one award that got announced before we went on last week. And then on Monday, we got the next award, and subsequently all of them throughout the week. And the one that uh, I think we're both going to have the biggest issue was the Monday award, which is Manager of the Year. We both agreed that it should be Anthony Barone. It seemed like the fans agreed it should be Anthony Barone. And everyone agreed it should be Anthony Barone, except for the people that voted. They said it is Rick Forney of the Winnipeg Gold Dice. And I understand where they're coming from here. I get it. He has a tough job with running a team that's essentially homeless at this point. He really is the guy that's making a lot of the decisions that maybe he would have made in tandem with his GM. He's really just the sole guy doing it because he's the sole guy that's south of the border running this team. So I get it. I understand the difficulty that comes with it. That said, there's different awards for that. And when I think manager of the year... I'm not so much thinking the behind the scenes and the roster moves and things like that. I'm thinking the day-to-day on the field results. And if they would have made the postseason, even after the collapse, I would have said, okay, that's fine by me to go with Forney. He made the postseason. I would have went Barone still, but Forney's not that egregious. But when they have a giant collapse, it doesn't... The team didn't even, like, they weren't losing these games, like, by one run or two runs or having a bad stroke of luck. They weren't getting just outplayed at times. And that falls on a manager as much as it falls on a player. And when you have a just a great year out of Milwaukee, a year where if we would have played the full 100, like I said, this team was going to win 60-plus games, and there really was no arguing at that point. You have that. And you go, we're not going to give it to Barone, we're going to give it to Forney. It, it, that award just seems to be misplaced. I don't agree at all with the, with the, with the decision that they made. Again, I, like you said, I do understand where they're coming from in the sense that obviously they, uh, they didn't have a home field. And that's, that's not an easy situation for anyone. I get it. But to have a team, and not, not to say it all falls on, on Rick Forney, but to have a team that uh, that was as talented as Winnipeg was and collapsed like they did at the end and missed the playoffs, I don't see how you can justify manager of the year. I understand. I mean, they gave, they gave 
they gave Winnipeg the executive of the year. No, like, no, no, still, no, that wound up going to Fargo Moorhead. Oh, sorry, my bad. Yeah, Matt Rowe. I knew I knew something to do with that. Anyway, I I just I just don't understand. I think manager of the year has more to do with the roster and the on field performance. I I just don't understand. I, I don't understand the logic. I mean, I mean, I guess I do, but at the end of the day, manager of the year comes down to on field performance, the on field product, and I don't and I I just don't see an argument of how. Winnipeg either outperformed expectations they did not or uh, were the best team, which they certainly were not either. I get it's a tough situation playing playing away from, from, from your home park the entire season, but I don't think that justifies giving a manager of the year award. It made no sense to me. Yeah, see, for all the difficulties, like you were getting, like you were going and saying uh, executive of the year is an option organization of the year is certainly an option i mean that that covers everybody if you call organization of the year and i understand their the result they want to go with matt rao i believe that one was announced on wednesday for executive of the year and i get it like don't get me wrong i understand why you go with him for that award i mean being a general manager is as much procuring a roster as it is managing your ballpark and the organization itself and obviously fargo moorhead uh had to really kind of manage two organizations this year, so I'm I'm cool with that. But there's other options. You could have Mike Collier in that spot for having to manage a team and run an organization that technically isn't playing this year, although they are actually playing south of the border. But from a from a nuts and bolts standpoint, really a lot of your job isn't able to be done or has to be so heavily modified it really isn't recognizable for that yeah you could give them executive of the year but i agree with you when a lot of it's just on the field day-to-day stuff and i imagine he has a heavy hand in the roster and i mean if you want to give him a large lead for roster construction because he brought in a lot of really talented guys i mean we saw for the first six weeks of the year there was a lot of really talented guys on that roster, and they're performing as expected. But it's just when you get to the last what, quarter of the year, last third of the year, and it all falls apart, it's hard to give him that award. And like I said, if he made the postseason, I can justify him having that award. But Anthony Barone managed his team better, assembled a better team in tandem with his GM, and I think just kind of deserve that award. And also, Forney's been around. I, how long has he been in this league? 15 years, I believe? Yeah, yeah long fi- time. Yeah, 15 years, 18 years is roughly that right around them. He's the second longest tenured manager in this league. Anthony Barone, I believe, is a first-time manager, period, in his first year at this level. And I just, in my mind, it should have been Anthony Barone's award. I don't want to say it's not a knock on Rick Forney because, I mean, that's kind of what we've been saying, that he didn't deserve the award he got. He's still a a quality manager. And, I mean, again, there's only so much that a manager can do when his players aren't performing, especially in a league like this. It's not exactly like you have the luxury of being able to call up a hot prospect from AAA. It's not exactly like even in a regular year when you can kind of scour across other leagues and kind of grab other guys. You kind of just got to work with what you have and who's local. And they tried to do a little bit of that after the Constellation League ended. They brought in Breland Almondova, but even Breland didn't look terrific. Now, granted, again, small sample size, but even still, I I don't put necessarily as much of the collapse on him as some may. 
but he does share part of the burden when it is his team that collapsed. And again, I just I I would have went Barone. Yeah, and no one no one's saying like oh his job should be in jeopardy because of oh his absolutely collapse. not. But like no one's saying that. But to give a manager of the year after that. No, no, exactly. it, it, like, that's just not, that's just not what I think of for manager of the year. Exactly. It, as far as like a long-term look, Forney's still a top five, or I want to say top five, there's only 12 teams in the league. He's still like, I'd say a top three, top four manager in the league. I mean, he's up there, uh, George Samus, Marone's got to be up there now. He's certainly making a mark for him, for himself. Forney's probably, I would say I may even put Forney at two, to be quite honest, over a long-term look, he's up there. So he's... As far as a legacy look, yeah, he deserves it. But we're not talking a legacy. We're talking in 2020, was he the best manager? And I don't think he was. I don't think anyone really thinks he was, except for the people that voted for him. Yeah, I I agree. It didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, yeah, right. So we'll kind of move on to the other ones. Rookie of the Year went to Peyton Gray. That was one of the Tuesday awards, and I think we all knew Peyton Gray was going to win that award. That was over before he even began. Um, Playing Surface of the Year. That was announced on Thursday. Uh, CHS Field, the St. Paul Field. Again, that one, uh, again, I don't really think anyone was that surprised. Really, you could have went to just about any field. I mean, Milwaukee had a running, Chicago had a running, and St. Paul had a running. Any of those three win, no one's surprised at all. Matt Matt Rao wins Executive of the Year. I believe that was a Wednesday award. Uh, He's the general manager of the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. I, I can agree with that. Again, being a general manager is partially the fun stuff, like constructing a roster, but it's also a lot of just running the business end of things, and it's extremely hard to run an indie ball team under ideal circumstances. Under these circumstances, even more difficult, and when you consider mm-hmm. of the six teams that played this year, what, four of them are in a pretty decent-sized media market, Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Paul, and then... Uh, well, technically, Winnipeg is a good market, too, but they weren't playing there. Fargo-Moorhead and Sioux Falls, South Dakota, are probably the two lowest of the medium markets that were playing this year. And when you have to run two teams out of that for the whole year and try to drum up local businesses to sponsor you when they're not doing well themselves, uh, a lot of hard work there. So I have no qualms with Matt Rao winning that award. Yeah, no, no problem whatsoever. I, I, I agree. I, I agree with one hundred percent. And then we have defensive player of the year, which is surprising to see it split. It was a co-defensive player of the year announced at the same time as rookie of the year. Brett Verdigan, a guy both of us picked to win it. Uh, he is one of the co-winners. And then former Somerset Patriot Michael Krause winds up taking the other half of that mm-hmm. award uh, from the Chicago Dogs. I want to say I'm. I'm offended that there's two picks here and that you just didn't pick one, but I really don't care at all, uh, yeah. to be quite honest. I mean, name five guys if you want, uh, but if you're going to name more than two, I will say, just name an all-defensive team at that point. Uh, two is kind of where I cap it off at. Kraus is perfectly deserving. I believe they actually tied in fielding percentage, so I imagine that's what the league and people that voted on the awards wound up deciding on. They were just like, ah, look, they're both tied in fielding percentage. It's wrong to give one the award and not the other because they both have equal claim to it. Just make them co. What was a matter at the end? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of co, of co, uh, co anything for, for awards, but <clears throat> like you said, Michael Krause was definitely deserving as well, and I know both of us 
uh, picked Brett Vertigan. So I, I think that I, I think it was I think it was I think it was fine. I, it's not something I'm going to lose sleep over. Uh, the code events of play of the year. I mean, after a while, I, mean, I watched Mike Krause in Somerset last year as well. He's he's definitely a good a good defensive player. So no, I have no problems there. I know he. At least when he was with New Britain, I know there's a video of him robbing a home run in Lancaster. He's perfectly deserving as well. So I'm not, again, I'm not a huge fan of co anything for awards, but it's fine. Exactly. That's why I look at it. So as we kind of are at the end of the American Association talk, uh, I figure at this point we should just kind of wrap up our discussion on the American Association. It's been a, a hell of a 2020 year. Uh, I don't think anyone really thought we were going to wind up playing baseball at the start of the year, or at least once we got past the start date and things started looking worse and worse. And to be quite honest, I'm I'm kind of shocked that we played all 60 games, or, well, most teams played all 60 games. I believe Chicago and Sioux Falls technically fall too short because of a rainout doubleheader, but that's totally unrelated to COVID. And the fact that they only had, what, the one issue with COVID throughout the whole year is yeah. really surprising to me. Uh, clearly, doing their kind of mini-hub model worked. There's a lot that could be taken away from their way they handle the COVID for a lot of organizations and a lot of collegiate organizations as well. Uh, as far as just a baseball standpoint goes, this was an extremely talented group of players. A lot of that was other leagues not playing and just drawing that talent in. A lot of it was getting the affiliated minor league guys in there. And a lot of it was just a lot of guys knowing that there's not a lot of other options out there for me to play baseball this year. So I need to perform at the highest level possible, more so than any other year. Otherwise, it's not going to be me going to a different league or playing down a level. It's just going to be me sitting on my couch, just throwing a baseball at, at, what, 95 an hour and putting the video up on Instagram. That's my only other option here. So I really need to step up. So the ball was definitely high quality. Uh, we saw teams like Fargo-Moorhead start slow, but then really take off at the end to make things kind of interesting. Uh, St. Paul, again, uh, they, they really looked like a solid team throughout. Obviously, they suffered from only having two teams make the postseason. Chicago, that's a team as well as Winnipeg. Very kind of a disappointing year for them. Kind of expected more out of them. And I would have liked to see this over a 100-game stretch to see what would have happened there. But uh, ultimately, that didn't happen. Obviously, we got a pretty good American Association final. Uh, the scores really don't tell how it looked. There was only one or two games that I could really say, okay, it's over before we got to the ninth. And uh, that's really all you can ask for out of a championship series. And all in all, I just really want to commend the whole league on doing a really quality job at providing baseball this year and giving us all something to watch and giving us that fix of baseball in 2020. Yeah, 100%. Huge, uh, huge shout out uh, to the American Association for being able to put this together uh, and really being the first ones to put it together. There really wasn't a, it was really a, uh, it was really impressive that. There wasn't really a model to do it before the. There wasn't really a model to playing playing any sport in the in the in the United States outside of maybe like the UFC or something, which is not terribly difficult to uh, to to run without fans or whatever. But it it was it was really the first with fans model in the U.S. professional as far as professional sports, and there was no precedent for it. There's no precedent at all for, for a pandemic like this in, in these times. And it was really impressive to see them put it to put, uh, put together a season 
that ran pretty much as smoothly as it did. Uh, so, so I completely commend the uh, American Association for for putting this together. I know it was sixty games. I know we all, all would have liked to see a longer season, uh, and. But I think at the end of the day, the league was incredibly talented. And Nick, you're you're definitely right when you say that a lot of these guys they knew they had to perform in the American Association this year because there's there's when you're trying to get like winter ball opportunities or maybe even affiliated minor league opportunities, like a spring training invite next year or something. Primarily looking for guys who were either playing in the American Association. Who were either playing in in Sugarland or um, or the, these like really uh, like legit leagues, and I, I think that it was definitely important for those guys to show out. And I think a lot of guys really really raised their stock. And I expect a lot of go- a good amount of guys out of this league to to potentially be get spring training invites for major league teams next year, which is really really exciting stuff. Be- beyond the guys who who are affiliated as it is. Uh, who were just playing to get to get more reps in. I thought it, it was a great season, a lot of talent, really entertaining, and uh, and I think the best team won. So I think at the end of the day, it was it was a great season for the American Association. Admittedly, this is the first time I've really followed or uh, really watched the American Association closely. Being being an Atlantic League guy, I definitely enjoyed it, and uh, definitely will be will be watching next year, even when uh, hopefully all all the independent leagues are back. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen enough out of here now, and I got to say, I think the American Association's kind of won my heart in a way. The only thing I, I struggled with this year was keep constantly forgetting that when I see 7 o'clock start time there, they mean central time, not oh, Eastern. no kidding. No I did kidding. that so many times where I was like, oh, shit, it's 7 o'clock. Let me go check to see if the game's on. And I pull up the app on my phone and go, it's not live yet. And I was like, oh, wait, it's only 6 o'clock there. That's why. Their gates are just uh, opening. Not- I learned that the, the hard way, like the first week of the season. And I think uh, it was like the first series of the year. And it was uh, it was Sioux Falls and St. Paul. It said uh, 12.05 start. I'm like, oh, boy, 12.05 start. Logging at 12. I'm like, why isn't this live yet? <laughs> and so <laughs> and not to mention, there's not many things that go on central time for us on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I do I do think that central time is, is incredibly irrelevant. Yeah. But and so it was it was uh, it was tough to adjust. But <laughs> you're right. definitely right. Because- and then I'm like I'm like and, and with the games are still going on at like eleven thirty Eastern time and I'm like, wait, this, this game's this game started at seven. Why is this still going on? And yeah they're yeah. right. That that was definitely an adjustment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're spoiled on the East Coast because everything just kind of goes by either our time or by West Coast time. So we're like, okay, so it's either going to be starting at seven or ten o'clock. If it starts at ten, I'll watch the first part and then say whatever. But if it yeah. starts on my time, it's fine. But yeah, the Central time is just hard to get a hold of. Just thank God there's no teams in the Mountain time zone because that would really screw with me because they're yeah. two hours off. Like, imagine having a game start at nine and now you're in that weird quasi zone. Where it's like okay, it's late, and I should go to sleep, but we're nearly at the end of this game now, and I can't turn it off two-thirds of the way through. I've watched too much. Exactly. But, exactly. But yeah, all, all in all, a really solid 2020 campaign for the American Association. I'm looking forward to 2021, where hopefully we'll have all 12 teams playing back in the normal circumstances, and I'm looking even more forward to having... Uh, 
the commissioner of the American Association, Josh Schaub, back on the show, hopefully in the near future, to talk about the whole season and kind of just dissect everything that happened and hopefully get a feel for what went well, what didn't go well, and what from this season we're going to see continue into the future. And hopefully we'll be able to schedule that fairly soon. I know he's already agreed to come back on the show, so it's just a matter of finding a time that works for everybody. So uh, we look forward to that. Uh, with that said, we have a little bit of other news to cover here. Before we wrap it up today, we're going to try and keep this show a little shorter than usual. You got like two hours last week, so you can't really complain at this one being a little shorter than usual. But uh, only, a, only a handful of other news items. Uh, an MILB update, and then of course Gastonia breaks news. Like, what, an hour after we finished recording last week? We finished recording at around 3 o'clock, and then at 4 o'clock they announced their team president, which... Again, if if these guys could just really release this stuff at noon, would be really, really helpful. It really would be. I agree. Because we record either at noon or 1 o'clock on Friday, guys. Like, please try to launch it in that zone. Even if you release it a little after when we finish recording, it's not that big of a deal. We can go back on and record a segment. I could just kind of throw it in there. But when you release it that long after, it's like, come on. But exactly. any case, we're just going to go to the MILB update and then get to that that other stuff here. Uh, so there's two real articles I saw. One was with the Boston Globe and one was, an art, was a Q&A with Scott Bush. He used to be with the St. Paul Saints. Now he's the CEO of Sabre. Uh, it was on Fangraphs. Obviously, all these articles are linked in our show notes on our website, IndieBallReport.com, under the show notes heading. Just scroll to the bottom of the page and find episode number 80, and you'll be all set there. Uh, so we'll start with the Globe article. A couple of things I took away from it. MILB is kind of viewed as not fully uh, being utilized correctly by MLB, that they're not really developing players in that same way and there's a lot more potential that could be extracted from them if used correctly uh some of the ways that mlb wants to kind of get involved is to inject some more sponsorships a different way of broadcasting getting better broadcasting deals more marketing a heavier digital engagement so more of an online presence more of an emphasis on streaming and things like that uh there is vr mentioned also sports betting fantasy sports and a lot more there i don't think anyone's really going to be playing fantasy milb i'm sure there are some gamblers that are going to be betting on minor league baseball but again if you're betting on minor league baseball you may have a gambling problem you should probably <laughs> see help for that because again you shouldn't be gambling on minor league baseball also another thing that was rather interesting was a possible mlb cup model it's uh, kind of after European soccer, where yearly you'd have some major league teams play some minor league teams, which sounds a lot more interesting than I think it really would be, because let's be honest, if a major league team wanted to really go out and win this tournament, they would win pretty hands down, regardless talent-wise. And, uh, yeah, a couple of other things that were of interest, it seems like the dream team slash league ideas kind of fallen off. MLB would use more of a licensing system for their affiliates. The license would either be 10 or 15 years. MLB wants 15. MLB wants 10. I believe 10 is kind of the number that's going to wind up going because, again, MLB has no leverage. So I could see that being the case here. If you're wondering why those lengths... 10 years for MLB says, okay, they'll be around long enough and we can still extract stuff from them, but it won't make them lazy. 15 years for MILB is uh, is the number because 
look, we'll have more security here and maybe they can give us more money to do upgrades and whatnot if they know they're going to be here for, what, like a fifth of a decade or something like that? A sixth of a decade? Yeah. Not a decade, my mistake, a century. But uh, so that's that. And uh, assuming that there are indie teams that go into affiliated ball, MLB would uh, take more control over them through uh, some sort of a supervisory role. They'd have some sort of equity stake in the team. Uh, the Fangraph Q&A goes into that a little bit more. And ultimately, the current system MLB views is bloated and illogically planned from a geographical sense. That's the way it goes. I think my sense on this is, again, they're bitching about minor things, them being MLB. I am kind of interested to see what they mean by the whole digital engagement, the sports betting, all of that's interesting to me here, but... Uh, not interesting enough for me to jump on board with them. Uh, from the groan when I said they don't want them to get lazy, I think you have something to say about that. So I'm going to let you uh, go on that tangent now. Yeah, so I, I think that, I, I think first of all, this MLB Cup model is absolute garbage. It's garbage. I, I, I have zero interest in it. As a guy, and I know, I know in your protest against the DH, you don't watch the MLB anymore, but I, I do watch plenty of, major league baseball uh all the time and i have and i probably instead of saying i have zero interest in watching mlb teams play minor league teams i'm gonna say i actually have negative interest in uh watching um and watching major league teams play minor league teams like it's so pointless that it's it's not it's not interesting at all if you want to have those type of games maybe as an exhibition before the year and i know some teams certain teams do this they'll have the um like in, like right after spring training and like a couple days before opening day they'll have um i know the mets did it with syracuse where they'll go uh the mets will go up to syracuse they'll scrimmage their triple a team uh in front of the in front of like the minor league minor league fans i think that's totally fine but in something that actually matters no i have no interest in that whatsoever as far as the mlb ta- taking more control over milb teams I don't really have as much of a problem with that as others do uh, I, because I, I do understand the need to readjust things from a geographical sense, as I've mentioned before on the show. I think, again, there's no there's no point that there's no there's no sense in having uh, the Nationals AAA team out in Fresno, California. It makes no sense. So I have no problem with them com- taking some control to completely readjust geography or for them to, um, I guess, uh, improve different things about about stri- different streaming aspects or, or or marketing aspects. I I don't really have an issue with that. The the thing I have an issue with is completely cutting affiliates. That's my issue. That's been my issue the whole time. There there's there's no there's no need for that whatsoever. I don't really care about the MLB taking more control over it as long as you're not cutting affiliates and there's still baseball and the product on the field is still the same. That's what I care about and I, it, it's. And uh, I, it's the, the licensing whole licensing idea is not really a, a, a huge deal to me, but I do think this, this MLB cup thing is, uh, is not really a, not a good idea at all. And the one other thing I did want to touch on is this whole dream league idea. It is, it's, um, it's an indie league that has MLB branding is what it is. It's yeah, the Atlantic I'm league. Sorry. I'm sarcastically saying how stunned I am that this dream league is not a thing that'll actually happen. And it's just the PR move. That's just for them to say, Oh, well, you're not really losing uh, a baseball in your city. I mean, we're not really going to pay for anything, 
but we, you can have the MLB logo to use on players that are not even in affiliated organizations. Like, there's no way this Dream League was actually going to work. There was no information provided about it, and it's not like they were just going to now make it up on the fly. They, they, they have no reason to, considering they have all the leverage in these in these negotiations. It doesn't really make a ton of sense to begin with, and at the end of the day, it, it's terrible that they're... It, you know what? If you're going to cut minor league affiliates, at least be honest and say what you're doing. You, I, then I can disagree with you, but at least we all know what you're doing. But don't try to hide it by saying that you're not contracting them, because you are. You're not, oh, but we're not contracting them. They could be a summer college wood bat league. Come on, man. Like, you're telling me that people are so dumb that they can't realize the difference between guys who are barely playing in Division One and, uh, and, and, a, a, like a high A team, like that, it's affiliated with a major league organization. Like, give me a break. You think people are morons? Uh, so at the end of the day, it's frustrating that they won't be just be upfront of what in what they're doing. That's the honest truth of it. But look, they're gonna sponsor some amateur leagues and some college wooden bat leagues. They're gonna sponsor them, so that oh, way, you, that way you can listen to get ready for the Mid Atlantic Future Baseball League. Presented in partnership with Major League Baseball. Today, the yeah. Binghamton Rumble Ponies take on your Trenton Thunder. Yeah. You don't want to listen it, to that? No, no, I really don't have much interest in, in doing that now. I mean, they're not even going to... They claim they, they're just going to slap an affiliation on. Here, here's like a couple thousand bucks. Have, have your fun. <laughs> oh, God. This... Again, I'm, my, my rantings are known. If I didn't have a sore throat, I'd go into another whole ranting about this and how stupid it is. But we all know that my thought is they have a point with the geographical uh, illogic, illogic, which does make sense. I mean, it makes no sense to have uh, East Coast uh, Major League teams with West Coast affiliates. It's totally illogical. They have a point there, and they do have a point that I don't think major minor league baseball is maximizing their potential. There are a lot of other ways of engagement. Where they don't have a point is when they say, uh, if we enter into a 15-year licensing agreement with the with the club, they may get lazy on the improvements and whatnot. Well, there's an easy way of avoiding that, which is called give them the money, they'll do it, and then if not, then you cut bait with them and the reputation spreads and then nobody licenses them. They pick a different indie team that would have either popped up in that 15-year span or already exists. And then that team is kind of, you know, up the creek without a paddle. That's that's an easy way of avoiding that issue entirely. But regardless of that, there is still another article to get to here. And that is the, the Q&A with fan graphs that uh, Scott Bush did. The Q&A itself is very good. There's a lot of information to take away from it. I'm just pulling highlights here. Again, I really recommend reading it. But a couple of things here is that they asked, would the contraction and are all these changes going to have a negative impact? Is it going to be good or bad for baseball? He said, well, you really can't tell in the long term. It could be positive. It could be negative. It could go a lot of ways. But in the short term, it's definitely going to be negative. But how they go from there will determine the long-term impact of it. Each side wants a longer affiliation agreement. And I, I do agree. Having an affiliate for two or three years is kind of stupid. Bush kind of alludes to if for two years you're a Rays affiliate, then three years you're a Rangers affiliate, then how can you really get that attached to a team or to players when you're watching the same guy for two years, then he disappears, and then you have a whole new slate of guys, and then it, it's hard to grow an attachment to the 
team itself and not just the brand of the team when they're constantly switching around the guys and who's running it you don't really have any stalwart figure to really you know build around so i agree with him on that front uh then he kind of goes into the indie ball thing here it definitely looks like indie ball is going to pair a lot closer with major league baseball and it could change a little bit of the look here he's not really sure how it could change it uh, he did mention a couple of other teams here, which hadn't previously come up with in reference to possibly starting up a new way of looking at AAA. Essentially, AAA would be a giant league itself. It wouldn't be like the International League and the Pacific Coast League. It'd just be the AAA League with a West and East and a Central Division. And some of the teams that could be added. Now, these are names that we haven't heard before, so I don't know and I assume it's really just kind of speculating, oh, these are nice ballparks, and maybe they'd look to become affiliated. They're near enough to other clubs, and it would make sense. Uh, Chicago, I mean the Dogs, uh, Gary South Shore, both of them being nice ballparks, and then obviously uh, the St. Paul and Sugarland uh, and Somerset were already there previously. And uh, he did work with uh, St. Paul, and from the way it's, he made it sound like it kind of reverted back to that original stance of they're not going anywhere. They're going to stay independent just because of it, but there has been a relationship that has grown a lot better over time, so who knows. Uh, Sugarland and St. Paul, he was saying, would both be AAA teams, It's which makes sense in and of itself. We know Somerset was slotting to that double-A stance here, but who really knows there? You kind of got to read into that. And this is really where he starts talking about MLB would have an equity in these teams. Normally, or more likely, rather, it would just be paying their way to become affiliated. That would be the equity share they have in it. So obviously, they'd hold uh, some say in the matter. And then part of what would be really interesting to see and what will have an effect later on that he was saying was, you could see what teams get cut depending on their lease agreement. The most of the Appalachian leagues, their ballparks are older, they're paid off, and quite frankly, they were cheap to build. So those are easy teams to cut. But there are other teams that still have a lease that had a lot of city money put into it that's left term on the lease. And by cutting them, you could be entering yourself into a court battle. Now, you'll probably still win that battle. Don't get me wrong here. But is that the kind of PR hit you want to take? Is that the kind of expense you want to expand on to just have this affiliate not exist anymore when you could just have it exist for like six years 10 years however long the lease is then cut bait when the lease is up or towards the end of it and avoid all the bad pr entirely that could play into it and then the final thing is they asked do you see an agreement being reached do you see possible extension happening into the current agreement or what do you think happening and he said uh, it's more likely they delayed the season than extend the current agreement and I thought that that's awfully telling of Major League Baseball, but not surprising in the least bit. And it was just a lot of good information out of that article. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely it's definitely um, a great article with somebody who's uh, been been in the world of indie ball. Uh, Scott Bush has he's been so connected uh, with, with the St. Saint Paul Saints previously. I think um, I think it was interesting to hear those other uh, indie ball teams, specifically in the American Association, uh, be mentioned as potential possibilities i think it could i think it could make some sense as well and the one that the, the thing that was definitely interesting to me was the uh the whole triple a idea you know it's hard for me to kind of envision it until i kind of see it in practice which is why it's hard for me to give an opinion on a lot of uh 
a, a lot of a lot of these ideas that are being thrown around because I, I don't know it sounds pretty good when just talking about it in practice well i'm not i'm not sure in general keeping triple a affiliates closer to mlb uh to mlb parks is, is definitely is definitely a good thing you have a lot more fans there uh you could draw a lot better from, from an mlb perspective from an mlb perspective it makes perfect sense to try and uh bring for the from a twins perspective it makes perfect sense to bring in saint paul for the Yankees and Astros, obviously the same thing with Sugarland and Somerset. I, I, I think it, it's hard to have an opinion on a lot of these new ideas that are be throwing around until you actually see it in practice. But wouldn't be surprised to see. I, I mean, well, we're get we're getting close to that date, Nick. We're getting close to that September thirtieth uh, date. We're, we're twelve days from now, where we'll where we can see some wheels start turning and we'll see. Uh, what answers we can get. Obviously, there's been speculation for so long, and eventually, it'll. It, what will hopefully by September 30th, either one way or another, we'll just start. We'll just start getting answers. Exactly. I, I just wanted. I, at this point, I almost just wanted to end. We know how it's going to end. We just kind of want to see how it wind up going. I will say one thing about the AAA thing. It seems like it does solve the geography problem. I will say that much. If you just say these teams are all AAA. I think we both mentioned something uh, last week or a week before where he said, look, if you got just redrawn the lines, but keep all the teams or keep at least most of them, that's cool too. Obviously, we're only getting half of that, which is the half that we'd rather not have, which is losing the teams and redrawing the lines as opposed to redrawing the lines and keeping the teams. But I don't necessarily have that much of a qualm with it, especially when you consider it's probably not going to be called like the East Division, the Central Division, the West Division. It's probably going to be like the International Division and the Pacific Division or whatever it may be. So I'm not necessarily against it. It's still there in spirit. Plus, again, it does solve a lot of the geographical issues and it could make it a lot more blanket and uniform and easier to follow. So from that perspective, I do agree with it. But again, I just don't agree with cutting 42 teams and killing all those jobs and killing all those ball players and all of that. I just I, I can't get on board with that. So exactly, that, that's where we sit now. I'd almost think it would be interesting to, to just have a whole debate on this issue here where one of us has the, the devil's advocate side of things where they argue for the major league plan as opposed to against it, even though we're both very clearly against this idea because it's not a good idea at all. I'm yeah. almost interested in doing that. Maybe we'll do that next week because if we don't do it yeah. next week, then we can't do it uh, at all. Yeah, we'll talk about it during the week. Yeah, we'll see. Plus, I know we got interviews I need to schedule and whatnot, so, well, I got work to do. That's basically it. So, uh, with the dying minutes of this show, we do have like two other short pieces of news to cover. Uh, the Jackals won the All American Baseball Championship and defeated the New York Braves. That was last Saturday night. Uh, good for them. Uh, it's a league I really didn't follow. It was kind of a pain in the ass to find stats for it. It really, it really was kind of annoying. I'm glad to see we both made our predictions on Friday afternoon of the Miners winning because we recognized names off of there. They seemed like the best team, and then they promptly <laughs> were beaten by the Braves in a pretty thorough thrashing, too. I believe it was like 7-1, to 7-4, to four, something like along those lines. Yeah. So good on them for showing up. And then... No, uh, yeah, that's really all there is to this league. Good for the Jackals. Technically, they're repeat champions back to back. Actually, they're repeat defunct league champions. 
The Can-Am doesn't <laughs> exist. The All-American Baseball Challenge should not exist next year because it'll be the Frontier yeah. League. So uh, yeah. for the sake of the Frontier League, I kind of hope they don't three-peat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, otherwise, I mean, the Jackals may never lose again. But uh, They're the yeah, Grim so, Reaper. <laughs> yeah, to, to be honest, um, it, it, it's so hard. I'm not sure the Jackals are the best team in this league. I, I don't think they were, but w- when you have a one-game playoff with the one and four seed and the two and the three, I mean, anything could happen at that point. So the Jackals came out on top. I don't think they're the best team in this league. I, I still think it's the Miners, and I think in a, if it was a five-game series, uh, the Miners would win in both instances. I understand why they couldn't do it that way, and I, I understand the time constraints they needed to finish the season so i get it but uh yeah but congratulations to the jackals they may never lose uh they may never lose again when the jackals win the league loses simple as that it looks like but sounds like it but yeah no i agree with all everything you said there when you get to one game anything can happen because it's sport but so there's that uh there was some confusion with the battle of the bourbon trail i had one guy saying the league isn't over, and then I had another guy who had a hand in founding the league going, oh, it's over. The Freedom won this. We're just doing all-star game stuff, and it would appear that way, so I'm going to congratulate the Florence Freedom on winning. I think it's over. I don't really know. <laughs> we'll know for certain after this weekend, so we'll talk about it more in October. But yeah, that's where it's at. I know today was supposed to be like a whole minor league, circuit league, wrap-up thing, but to be quite honest, let's all be honest, you care more about the American Association, that's why I got the lion's share of this show, with the exception of like the last half hour, and also there's other stuff to talk about, so they're getting pushed, (laughs) and let's be honest here, we could talk about these leagues throughout the winter, and it'd probably be better off because then we could actually get people that were involved in the leagues onto the show to talk about it. And that's kind of what I think the plan should be going forward in regards to wrapping these leagues up. And we could do all that once I finally fix my computer, once my new screen gets here. Hopefully that'll go. be fixed by the uh, middle of next week. So Yeah, so uh, the, the one the one interesting thing is uh, Brendan Phillips won the Home Run Derby. So good for him. Good for him. Good for, him. What good for that future Gastonia player. That's right. He, he, he's, he's Brandon Phillips is just a beast. So seeing him win the home run derby is, is just awesome. And that's pretty much all I have to say about the Battle of the Bourbon Trail. <laughs> him and his brother should both go to Gastonia. I'm just saying, I think we should <laughs> win. And let's, we'll leave off uh, the Bourbon Trail there. And speaking of Gastonia, that is our last story. Again, guys, stop dropping news at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We can't do a segment on it if you drop it then. If you want to drop it at 3 in the afternoon, don't put it on a Friday. Put it on a Thursday. We can put it into the show, and then everybody's happy. You get promoted because we talk about it. We get more content to talk about it. Real symbiotic relationship here. But, exactly. But they did name their COO on Friday after we finished recording. Uh, it's David Martin. He is the first full-time staff member of the team. And uh, he's going to run the team and the ballpark business ops. He has 25 years of experience. He's opened ballparks in Sarasota, Florida, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Fresno, California, and most recently, High Point, North Carolina. So he did help get the... Uh, I guess now Truist Park open and up and running. So obviously there's there's something to be said there. He's also worked with NASCAR 
And uh, yeah. the more important news here, because I don't think uh, a lot of us are really going, well, we're all going to notice and what he does is going to affect the team greatly, but it's not really the position that's that uh, flashy to the average fan. What's flashy to the average fan, what I'm sure a lot of our listeners care about, is the team name and the branding is going to be unveiled in November. When it's unveiled, there will be merch available for purchase. And uh, we will soon have our finalists coming out by the end of the month, they said. So within the next two weeks, we will have the names of the finalists. So oh, we'll yeah. have all that. I do know uh, David Martin did play a, a crucial role because I, I do know a, lot, a good amount of people in the High Point organization. They had nothing but great things to say about David Martin and all the things that uh, – that, that that he did helping the, helping high, the high point rockers get off the ground so definitely sounds like like a great hire for gastonia and hopefully he can do uh the, he can have similar successes in gastonia i mean it seems like he has success for every i mean winston salem's doing pretty good fresno's doing good obviously high point's doing great he has the experience uh everyone has glowing reviews of him so yeah, it seems like a pretty exactly. solid hire all the way around and I'm going to be interested to see what he does there. But still, yep. the mystery exists. Who made those draft picks? I, I have no idea. We need to get someone from Gastonia on now. Get David Martin on the phone. We need to talk. That's right. <laughs> uh, but with that, we're all out of news for this week. You got a longer show than I anticipated, about an hour and 15 minutes. So, I mean, you can't complain about that. You get a long show after a long show, apparently now. But uh, right. with that said, we'll go to the plugs and then we'll uh, get out of Dodge. If you want to find the show on another podcast media, maybe you just got a random link to the show. We're on just about every podcatcher imaginable. We're on Podomatic, we're on Spotify, we're on TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, apparently we're on Deezer too, I didn't know that, but apparently we are. Uh, we're also on Apple Play, or Apple Podcast, or whatever the hell they're calling it now. We're on Google Podcast, we're on, or like I said, just about anywhere you can find podcasts were available so be sure to rate review download the show do whatever you do with the show just make sure you keep listening to us uh you can also follow the show on instagram at indie ball report and at alpb underscore news you can also follow us on twitter at indie ball pod there's some cool graphics i threw up over there too so you want to follow on all those mediums too to get the cool graphics I always go up there and whatnot uh then you can also find everything we do and the show itself as well as videos articles and the show notes on the website indieballreport.com be sure to go over there and check out all that stuff again once that laptop gets fixed there'll probably be some more videos that'll be coming up and there'll also be a slew of other articles including gastonia articles and wrap-up articles and all sorts of things just to really fill time and i hope her decent enough reads so uh, with that said do we have anything else left to add i don't i don't think so this week now all i'm gonna add is the ottawa sanders announced while we were recording they're going back to their cool 2d logo as opposed to the stupid 3d one they've been rocking for like the past <laughs> decade and a half so yay the ottawa senators of the national hockey league finally have a nice looking jersey again we knew there this change go. was coming it's finally come i'm so happy about that with that, yep, with that said, and nothing else left to add, you know the drill around here. Don't forget to play ball. <laughs>